Three Strands is growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, visit us at threestrands.church. Uh, you guys got a um, Christmas tradition joke? Anybody got like a Christmas tradition joke? Maybe you're like a, um, you're that guy that like wraps up the coal and gives it to somebody as a gift, like a gag gift. Anybody ever do that? Or maybe you're that guy or girl that like you take the little tiny, like not very good gift and then you keep wrapping it in bigger and bigger boxes. And so the person thinks they're getting something real awesome only to find that inside the box, just a smaller box and a smaller box, a smaller box until it's like nothing but a card or something like that. Is that you? But uh, Christmas jokes, Christmas traditions. You know, you think about those for just a second. It doesn't really matter what's on the inside of the box. As long as it's wrapped up real nice and pretty and it's stuck under the same tree as all the other presents, you think it's like a real gift, right? And so uh, even if somebody's messing with you or joking with you, you're kind of, the reason the joke works, the reason you're deceived is because you see the gift under the tree and it looks just like all the other gifts to you. From the outside looking in, it looks just like every other present you're going to get until you finally open it or disappointed, right? Because it wasn't what you expected, which is what we shared last week. And so in this series, I said that I was going to share with you three gifts that we need, but we don't always want. We don't always expect them. And when we open them, we're almost disappointed because they're not what we were looking for. They're not what we were wishing for or expecting to get. And um, so most presents operate just like that. You wrap them up, you make them look real nice, But underneath, if it's just socks and underwear, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to wish it was something different. You're going to wish it was something you've been wanting or looking for. And uh, so if you open up a present this Christmas and inside of the box is just a smaller box or a lump of coal or maybe just some socks and underwear, you might feel just like this girl in this video I want to show you. So is that how you feel? So uh, I, I thought this week, I wonder if that little girl in the video, I wonder if that's like what God sees or hears when he looks down at me and he gives me all these things and he um, points me in all these directions to go and he offers all this evidence of his goodness like we sang about this morning. And yet I just keep saying back to him, I just want a toy. I just want a toy. I don't care what's in the box. I just want a toy. And so it brings me to the second gift we're going to talk about in this series. It's just like last week where we talked about love and how you're not really always looking for the kind of love God's offering, but it is what you need the most. This one fits into that same category. So I want to talk to you today about hope. And, and it might not be exactly what you're thinking because in our culture, a lot of times hope um, gets used interchangeably with the word wish, right? You're like, I, I, uh, I, I hope they'll be there tonight. I hope Mom and dad will take me out to eat. I hope I get this present for Christmas. And really what you're saying is I wish that I would get that. And a wish is kind of like a, you know, you, you want something you don't have to come true. But a hope goes a little deeper than a wish. Hope is based on some evidence. So let me give you my definition for hope today. You could find several different definitions depending on what dictionary you look in. But they all revolve around this same idea. But So here's my definition of hope. It's A confident expectation, now that's the wish part, that the future will be good. There's an expectation that the future will be better than it is now. But hope adds to the wish this confidence. Can you go back to that last one? Can you go back? That's okay. 
It's a confidence that what you're expecting is actually going to happen. A confidence. Uh, 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 an expectation that's based on evidence. In, in other words, like, I could wish that LeBron James would show up at my house today and give me a couple million dollars. That's a wish. I got no evidence to support that he's probably going to do that or that there's even a chance that could happen, right? But, but I hope that my family is all at home with me tonight when I go to bed. That's a, a hope. That's an expectation, but it's based on some evidence that I know they've been there every night that I've gone to bed the last several years. So there's some evidence to back up that expectation. That's the difference. That makes sense? So you just got to be careful we don't use the word hope and wish interchangeably when we're teaching through this idea today. So hope is this, it's this confident expectation I have that the future is going to be better than it is right now. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but research shows that we live in a time right now, the last five years, the first time in the entire history of our country where the age group between 18 and 25-year-olds, which several of them are here today, you're almost not in that age group anymore, but several of them are here today. The age group in our country between the ages of 18 and 25 years old, the majority of them no longer believe that the future will be better than it is right now. It's the first time ever. Every other generation in our nation's history, you could ask them, hey, do you think things are looking up? Things are going to get better. And the majority would say yes. But now the majority, 57% or something like that, say they don't believe the future will be better than this. They believe our country, their standard of living, their relationships, their life in general is progressively going to get no better than it is now, but worse and worse with each passing year. In other words, we live in a world now that has lost hope. I don't know if you're aware of that. I don't know if you can see it if you watch the news or if you just look around where you work or where you go to school. If you listen to what people are saying, you can tell that people don't have quite the same hope that they would have had 20, 30, 40 years ago. They've lost hope. I want to share with you guys a quote from a book today, and then I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about the author. Then I'm going to read you the quote again. Is that okay? So here's the quote from the book first, so you can hear it. The experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment in our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. This guy who wrote this in this book, uh, the book's called A Grace Disguise. His name is Jerry Sitzer. And he's a professor at a university out in the Pacific uh, Northwest. And um, he teaches, uh, I think, biblical history or religion and Christian worldview or Christian ethics, something like that. But the story behind this book he wrote, A Grace Disguised, is that Jerry was, many years ago now, driving home one night and was in a car accident when a drunk driver crossed the center lane and hit his car head on. Now, Jerry walked away from that accident without a scratch on him, a little bit of like whiplash and a little sore, but in that accident, he wasn't the only one in the car. Everybody else who was in the car with him died. It was his wife his mother, and his daughter. And yet he walked away with not a wound on him. And he talks about in this book how he wrestled so long with the guilt of feeling like, why wasn't it me that died? All the people I love are dead. And he ends up writing this book, and this is like a key idea in the book, where he says, that moment in my life could have defined me for the rest of my existence. 
I could have been known forever as the guy who was depressed and discouraged, and rightfully so, because I'd had everything I love taken from me. But he said, instead, I used that moment as a catapult to launch me into a future that was better than the past. A future that was defined not by one loss or one moment in time, but was defined by promises and hope for the future. Defined by what my creator says about me and what my creator says is waiting for me. That's what hope is. Loss, pain, difficulty, struggle, addiction, things that don't go your way, uncomfortable circumstances, they reveal in us if we have hope or not. If we have hope or just a bunch of wishes. And I watch so many people that loss or pain happens to them and it wrecks them. It wrecks them. They can't seem to go on. They kind of get stuck in time. Maybe that's you or maybe you know somebody like that. Jerry Sitzer is a good example of this fact that you don't get to choose the parts you play in life, but you do get to choose how you'll play the parts you get in life. That's the choice. That's what hope's all about. Hope isn't about getting you out of difficulty. It's about getting you through difficulty. You think you're the only one that has lost. You're the only one that feels pain. You're the only one that gets a bad diagnosis. You're the only one that has people betray you. You're the only one that hurts. We all have that. Hope doesn't get me out of any of that. It doesn't get you out of any of that. You don't pray some prayer to Jesus and then all of a sudden everything goes well for you the rest of your life. We still have medical problems. We still have friends treat us poorly. We still have circumstances not go our way. But hope is evidence I have of God's faithfulness in the past and the present that gives me a reason to expect that the future will be better. Not because I'm wishing for it, because I'm trusting in what I've already seen him do. Hope. This is what hope looks like. This is what hope is. It isn't about how many times you get knocked down or fall down or slip up or mess up in life. It's like Proverbs 24, 16 says, that the righteous man falls down seven times, but he keeps getting back up. Being righteous has nothing to do with being perfect. Because you can't be perfect, but you're commanded to be righteous. Being righteous has nothing to do with getting it all right all the time. It has to do with the fact that when you feel discouragement, and when you feel pain, and when you feel lost, you get back up because you have hope. Over and over again, you keep getting up. Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, you don't understand. Everybody knows me as this one thing. Everybody knows me as the guy that can't seem to hold down a relationship or the girl that can't seem to find the right job. Everybody knows me as the addict or the screw-up. Everybody knows me as the divorcee. Everybody knows me as the one who's always depressed and never smiling. Everybody knows me. And you don't understand, that's what I am. And those are the only voices you hear. And sometimes they're coming from yourself speaking those same lies into you. That you'll never be any different than you are right now and it'll never be any better than it is today. Hope? 
It's not even on your radar because you keep hearing all these voices labeling you all these things that God says you're not. Those voices are loud. I get it. But the voice you listen to will determine the future you experience. So you got to make a decision whose voice you're going to listen to. Is it going to be everybody else's? Is it going to be your own? Or is it going to be God? If it's God, then you can have hope. If it's anybody or anything else, you will not have hope. And when pain and loss comes, you will disappear. You will turn hermit. You will run and hide. Because you won't be able to deal with the loss or the pain. I know this is a heavy subject for the week before Christmas. It doesn't even sound like it has anything to do with Christmas. But I promise it does. So what I want to do today is I want to share a prayer that I have for you. I prayed this prayer for you guys this morning. at 6 a.m. at my house. I got up and I prayed for each of you that I could think of individually by name. And then I prayed for all the people I might have missed. So, But I think almost everybody, I was able to remember your name. And I prayed this same prayer for you individually today. It's a prayer that Paul, the apostle, prayed for the Christians that lived in Rome. He wrote them a letter. We call it the book of Romans. <clears throat> but in that book, <clears throat> he records a prayer that he has for them. It's the same prayer I prayed for you today. Let me read it to you. It's in Romans <clears throat> chapter, thir- chapter 15, verse 13. This is what it says. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, if you're a note taker, write that down there. Full of confident hope. Full of confident hope. This is my prayer for you this morning. You'll walk out of here and that the God of the universe, the source of all hope, will fill you up completely with peace and joy because you trust him. Not because everything goes well, but because you trust him. And if you do that, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so I want to spend most of the rest of our time today telling you a story. It's a story from the Bible. I'm going to read you a few pieces of it. I don't have time to read you the whole thing. It's four chapters long. You have to read it on your own. I would encourage you to do that this week. It's in the Old Testament. I know now somebody, like one of you like deep thinkers, is like, what does that have to do with Christmas? Christmas doesn't even start until Jesus was born, right? So stay with me for a second. It's a little book in the Old Testament. It's the very first book of the Bible that I studied when I decided I wanted to become a pastor, okay? I was like 12 years old, and I got my Bible out, and I wanted to study something from the Old Testament. I was like, I'm going to study, but I needed something small, right, because I was 12, you know? And so I turned to this book because it's one of the smaller books uh, in the Old Testament. It's the book of Ruth. There's only two books in the whole Bible named after women. This is one of them. I love this story. It's such a good story. It, it almost plays out like a tragedy followed up by a romantic comedy. So if you're into those kind of movies, it'd be a great like four chapters for you to read this week. But I want to kind of tell you the story of Ruth as um, succinctly as I can. I won't get every detail, but kind of give it to you in general. You could go back to about a year and a half ago. Kenny, didn't you teach something out of Ruth about a year and a half ago? I don't remember what series it was in, but I can remember you teaching some stuff out of Ruth. But. And so uh, let me read you the first five verses of the story. It's in Ruth chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 1. And then we'll kind of dig into it. And I'll tell you some of the story from there. Are you ready? In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, that's your first Christmas reference right there, left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. All right, you guys see the scene so far, right? Everybody sees it? This guy takes his wife and uh, uh, decides to leave Bethlehem and travel to another country, the country of Moab, because there's a famine in the land, and they probably heard there's better crops in Moab or there's food available in Moab, right? So they decide to go to Moab, and they take their two sons with them, all right? Verse 2, Then the, man, the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. Those are two excellent boy names. You're looking for a boy name for your next baby? You can go Malon and Kilion, right? Sounds very intimidating. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Verse 3, Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and one, the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone with her two, without her two sons or her husband. All right, you see the scene, right? So Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they travel from Israel, from Bethlehem in Judah, in Judah the whole way to Moab, right, to look for food, to get better crops. When they get there, Elimelech dies. So now Naomi's a widow with her two sons. The two sons get married. Ten years after they get married, the two sons both died. So now it's just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Daughter-in-laws. Daughters-in-law. One of those. I don't know. Daughters-in-law, I think. Right? And they're living in Moab. So here's Naomi, a widow who's lost both of her sons also, living in a foreign land where she probably didn't know that hardly anybody, if anybody, when they moved there. And she still got her daughters-in-law with her. So you, that can be tense in itself, I guess, sometimes, right? And so there they are in Moab. So I want to give you just a couple pieces of background information so you can um, kind of be on the same page with me and understand the story, right? So Moab isn't just your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill neighboring country. Moab's got a history with Israel. In fact, earlier in the Bible, God put a curse on Moab. He said to his people, like, don't go down there. Don't hang out with those people. They're going to be cursed to the 10th generation. Why? Because when Israel tried to come in and take the land God promised them, Moab resisted them, tried to keep them from going in, tried to attack them and defeat them, tried to throw up roadblocks and keep them from inheriting the land God promised them. And so God puts this curse on them. And so it was kind of like they weren't just uh, foreigners. They were like cursed foreigners, right? People that the Israelites wouldn't really want to hang with, people that they wouldn't really want to marry or associate with. And that just tells you how severe the famine must have been. So Elimelech takes his family down there and settles in Moab. And, of course, his two sons end up marrying two women from Moab. That's important to remember. This woman, these women, Ruth and Oprah, or Oprah, Orpah, who are under a curse. Oprah might be under a curse, too. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, probably not. I'm just kidding. Don't say that. And so... Uh, they marry these women that are from this country that like, they would think of as like not such great people. And then the sons die. So, so what's Naomi going to do? So Naomi gets word 10 years after they moved there. She gets word that the crops back in Israel started to grow again. Things are better again, plentiful back home. So she decides she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's going to move back to her hometown, Bethlehem. 
So she starts out on this journey heading back to Bethlehem, and the two daughters-in-law are going to come with her. But she says to both of them, you don't need to come with me. You, you have no obligation to me. You've, you married my sons, but they're not here anymore. Go, go, go remarry. You're still young. Go back to your own land and find a new husband. Live a great life. I'm going to go back to where I grew up. And, and the one daughter does. She leaves, but Ruth won't. Ruth decides to stay, and the Bible says she kind of clings on to her mother-in-law and won't leave her side. I want to read you what Naomi says to her. It's in verse 15 of chapter 1. She said, look, Naomi said to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's an important phrase in the book, right? Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But listen to what Ruth says to her. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And then listen to this phrase. Your God will be my God. I'm not going to go back to the gods I grew up with. I'm not going to go back to the gods I'm familiar and comfortable with. I've made a decision, a choice to make your God my God. No matter what it costs me. It might cost me being at home. It might cost me getting another husband might cost me anything, but I've made this decision, I'm with you, no matter what. Verse 17, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, your God, punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. This is a great picture. Who can come to God? Who can be right with God? Is it only people who are born in the right family or the right country? Is it only people that uh, grew up in the right church or, or understand the Bible correctly in every area? Is it only people that do all the right things? Is there a, is there a certain, is it only the people that God says, that's my special nation? No, it's even a woman from a, a heathen country that is under a curse can make a decision to not go back to her country's gods, to not go back to the gods she was taught growing up, but instead to make your God my God, to make the God my God. Anybody can come to him. Now listen, don't let the divine irony of this picture escape you, this young woman traveling to Bethlehem on an unexpected trip that she wasn't planning for, because that is the Christmas story too. A young woman travels to Bethlehem on an unexpected trip that they weren't planning to go on. And here's the scene. So Naomi and Ruth are headed back, or headed to Bethlehem, first time for Ruth. Naomi's headed back there. Look at verse 19, chapter 1. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Now, you need to understand, like Bethlehem's a pretty big town right now. But at this time, about 3,000 years ago, Bethlehem was just a small town. Probably just a few hundred people, maybe a thousand people, probably not even. So everybody kind of knew everybody. It's like here. Everybody knows you and they're all in your business. That's how it is here, okay? You just got to get used to it. You just got to get used to it, Brad. That's how it is here. They're in your business. It's okay, though. It's the way we live here. And so everybody knows Naomi. So she comes back to town, and they're all excited about it, right? 
It's like, it's like a, a, a kid that moves away for college, and then they come back years later, and everybody's like, hey, they're back, you know, and you're all happy to see them again. Is this really Naomi, the women asked? Now listen to Naomi's response to this. Don't call me Naomi, she says. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. All right, so you need a little info here. So the word Naomi means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. But the word Mara means bitter. It's what she's saying. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full. And if, you're a, if you circle in your Bible or if you've got a Bible app, highlight it. Circle or highlight that word full. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? I don't know if you can pick this up or not, but she's upset. You got it? She's angry at God. I don't even want to be called by the name that somebody gave me. I don't even want to be called what I was called before, because that's like a God's name. Like my parents gave me that name as a Hebrew. I don't even want to identify with that God because I can't stand him right now. I hate him. He, he, he sent me away full, but he took everything I had from me. And now I come home empty. You, you get it? She's bitter. She's bitter. P- pain and loss. Struggle that you can't seem to kick. Addiction. Circumstances that keep, seem to, keep seemingly mounting against you, they tend to have this way of taking all your joy, making you bitter. And that's the situation you find Naomi in. Can you, can you remember that for the rest of the story? She's upset. She's not the same Naomi that left Bethlehem over a decade earlier. She's come back and she's upset with the Lord. And it's, so she arrives back in Bethlehem at the beginning of what the Bible calls the harvest, the, the barley harvest. It's like late spring, early summer, the first harvest of the year. And that's important because you need to know like Israel had this law. And, and here was the law. The law was like if you were poor or destitute, had no way to provide for yourself during the harvest time, you were permitted, and if you were a Hebrew, you were permitted to go into somebody else's field behind their harvesters and pick up any grain or fruit or vegetables, anything that they didn't harvest or that they harvested and fell under the ground, they left behind. You could pick up their scraps and live off it. It wasn't like the the dream job, but it was like the I won't starve to death job. You get me? And so uh, they come back to Israel right at the beginning of this harvest season, this grain harvest time, barley harvest. And that's important because they have no way to make money. Women wouldn't be allowed to get jobs during that time. They wouldn't be allowed to own property. And so they were poor and destitute. And so Ruth goes to Naomi and she says to her, can I go out and work the field? Can I pick up this grain or barley that's dropped from these other harvesters? And she lets her go and she goes out into this field and people are harvesting and there Ruth is behind them all by herself, this foreigner picking up the leftover barley to take home and feed her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. She doesn't know it, but the man whose field she's in is named Boaz. And Boaz is actually related to her dead husband. She doesn't know it yet, though. 
And she's out there picking up this barley, and Boaz comes home, and he sees all of his employees out harvesting the crops. And then he sees behind them is this woman all by herself. And so he goes to his people, his servants, his employees, and he says, who's this woman back here harvesting? Who is she? Have, she's not one of my employees. Who is it? They tell him who it is, and he goes up to Ruth and says to her, you go ahead and keep on harvesting. Now, he isn't romantically interested in her. It's not that he uh, is like caught, his, his eye isn't caught. No, he hears her story, and he's like, oh, the honorable thing for me to do would be to go up to her and let her keep doing what she's doing. So he goes up to her, and he says, go ahead and keep harvesting. I give you permission to harvest in my field. In fact, you don't even have to just pick up the leftovers. You can harvest anything you want. Come over here. We'll even give you lunch. Eat as much as you want. Take some leftovers home to your mother-in-law. He goes to his employees. He says, treat her nicely. Nobody be harsh to her. That was a huge thing because she, here she is, this single woman, a foreigner in their country. And some of these um, fields that she might have went to, the, other, the, the harvesters, the employees, the landowners, they would have abused her. Kicked her off the land just for being a foreigner. She didn't have the right to be there because she wasn't even a Hebrew. They would have maybe physically abused her, taken advantage of her, uh, walked up on her and taken the crops she harvested. <clears throat> but here Boaz says to his employees, treat her with kindness. Let her harvest whatever she can harvest. Let her take whatever she wants and be kind to her. And he goes up to her and he, <clears throat> he says, stay as long as you want. Don't go to any other fields and work. Just work in our fields. Here you'll be safe. Here you'll be taken care of and protected. And Ruth's response to him in chapter 2, starting in verse 10, is this. Look. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. And he says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come, I love that phrase, to take refuge, reward you fully. If you're circling stuff or highlighting it, circle that word fully. May he reward you fully for what you have done. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I get it. I get it, Ruth. But man, you're so honorable. You've lived such a, I can tell you're following God. I can tell you're a woman of great virtue and great honor. And so I want to kind of pay it back. I, I want to kind of do, do to you what you've been doing to the other people around you. Sacrificing yourself for them. And so Ruth is free to support her family now. Her and her mother-in-law. So she reports back to Naomi at the end of the first day. Imagine her going home. She's thinking she could barely bring enough food for them to eat. And she comes home with all this food, even leftover lunch that, that Boaz and his crew had fed her. And she comes home and Naomi's kind of like, well, how'd it go today? Right? <clears throat> and this is what she says in verse 19 of chapter 2. Ruth said, the man that I worked for, the man that I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now, this is where Ruth finds out that Boaz is actually related to the family. Because <clears throat> Naomi knows him. 
And she knows that he's related to the family, and she calls him in this translation a family redeemer. Now, some translations translate that the kinsman redeemer, kinsman redeemer, or family redeemer. Some translations call it a, a really close relative or a guardian redeemer. So this was another law in Israel. I know we're getting into some weeds on some of these laws, but it, it makes a difference to understand these short four chapters. Sometimes it's okay to go a little deeper, right, in God's Word. So, um, so this kinsman redeemer or family redeemer, this was like a legal term. In Israel. What it meant was if a man died in Israel, their closest living male relative had what they kind of called first rights to all their property. In other words, they didn't just auction it off or just didn't just go to a will. It went to the kinsman redeemer or the family redeemer, the closest living male relative. They would go to him and they would say, Do you want to buy your brother's land, your dad's land, your son's land, whoever had passed away? Do you want to buy all their property and their possessions? Do you want to redeem? This is the first time this word comes up in the Bible, this redeem word. The redeemer. And redeem just simply means to buy back. To buy it back. Do you want to buy back the land, the possessions, the people of the person in your family who just died? And if you do, you are the family redeemer. So Naomi says, yeah, Boaz is a close relative. He's a kinsman, a family redeemer. He, he could actually buy up all the land that my husband and your husband that they owned. So this is good. Let him be kind to you. He's being so kind to you, not just because of you, but because he's related to us. The kinsman redeemer. All right, so then you get to chapter 3 of the story, and Naomi hatches this plan. It's a plan to uh, uh, get, get Ruth and Boaz to get married. Really, it's, she's trying to hook them up, okay? So this is like her, she's scheming a little bit behind the scenes. And so uh, she goes to Ruth, and it, it, this is something that would never happen today. It's just a ritual. It's like the way they operated back then. It's going to sound strange to us, but it's just kind of the way they did things. And so... Uh, um, she says to Ruth, I want you to, there's a, there's a party coming up, and Boaz is going to be at the party. He's going to go in, he's going to eat, he's going to drink. Don't say anything, just let him eat and drink. And then at some point, he's going to lay down, take a nap, go to sleep for the night. When he does, go in right beside him at his feet and lay down right by his feet. All right? And when he wakes up, he'll see you there. And, and in this culture, what that meant was like, I want to marry you. I, I get it, you wouldn't do that. Guys, if you're here and you're waiting for her to come lay by your feet, She's not going to do that, all right? So just, it's not going to work that way today, okay? And so, um, so Ruth decides she'd do this to honor her mother-in-law. Now, I want you to know it's, it's most likely that Ruth, pro Ruth, that Ruth probably wasn't really into Boaz. I need you to know that because Boaz is significantly older than Ruth. I mean, like, probably double or triple, like, really old, her age, okay? At least a generation older than her, Right? And so she might not have really been into him, but this is almost like a, an act of honor, all right? And so, uh, uh, so she obeys, and she goes in that night, and Boaz is asleep, and she curls up there at his feet. Now, he wakes up at midnight. Now, here's what happens when he wakes up in chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who wouldn't be, right? Okay, so he's surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. This is a good indicator. Like, it wasn't like this was some kind of, Boaz didn't have an eye for Ruth. He wasn't thinking he was going to marry her, hook up with her, because he doesn't even know who she is at this point now. Like, he doesn't even remember, you know? And so she's like, I'm Ruth, your servant. 
And she says, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my, here's this phrase again, family redeemer. All right, so nobody's going to do this today either, but she's like, yeah, just take your blanket and like put it over my legs there. So like, that's like your way of saying like, I do, you know what I mean? I'm in, you know? And so uh, this is just the way it would work. In that culture at that time, a man of Boaz's age would never have approached a woman of Ruth's age or her family and asked for her hand in marriage. He was too much older than her. He just wouldn't do it. The only way this marriage would happen is if Ruth or her family member would come to Boaz and propose. That's what's happening here. She's proposing 3,000 years ago. She comes in, lays at his feet. He wakes up and sees her. Who dis? It's her. And she's like, spread your blanket over my feet. And he's like, all right, you know, we're going to get married, I guess. And she says, because you're my family redeemer, because you have the first right to buy me back since my husband died, because you're the closest relative, will you buy me back? Wow. Now, Boaz agrees. Here's what he says in verse 10. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaims. Now listen to why he does it. It isn't because he thinks she's so beautiful or because she's younger and he's like, sweet, younger girl. You know, he doesn't, this, listen to why he does it. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. You could have gone out and found somebody who had a lot of money, somebody that was way younger than me. But you didn't. Now he says, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. She already had this reputation of being a good girl, being honorable, being virtuous. Boaz loves that about her. And he's like, I'll do it. I'll be the family redeemer for you. But the story doesn't end there. Boab is also a man of great honor. You can see that through this whole story. He doesn't take advantage of Ruth at the beginning when he could have. Uh, he could have just taken what he wanted. He could have just kicked her off his land, but instead he showed her kindness. He could have kicked her out of his room when he was sleeping and be like, I'm trying to sleep, get out of here. But he didn't. He agreed to be the family redeemer. And now he could have just went ahead and done it, but he didn't. He wakes up the next morning and he says, I have to go talk to somebody because the truth is I'm not the closest family redeemer. There's another relative that's closer in relation to your husband, to your dead husband, to your father-in-law. So I need to go to him and I have to ask him if he wants to buy up your property and you, and I have to let him. The honorable thing to do is to let him do it. So, so Boaz goes to this other guy and he has this meeting with him. He says, hey, you're the family redeemer of Elimelech and um, Naomi and Ruth, and do you want to buy up their land? The guy's like, yeah, I'll buy it. Boaz is kind of like, oh, man. But then Boaz says, but I need you to know there's a catch. If you're going to buy the land, you have to buy all of Elimelech's possessions. That includes Ruth, the wife of one of his sons from Moab. This guy says, like, I'm out. I was good buying the land, but I don't want the girl from Moab. She'll ruin my reputation. She'll hurt my business. People will like, think bad of me. He checks out because he doesn't want anything to do with this girl from Moab. And Boaz is like, yes, I'm back in. So now Boaz is able to be the family redeemer. He instantly buys up all the property so that they can live on it. 
provide for them the rest of their lives. And he marries Ruth. And then in chapter 4, I'm going to read you part of this, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. And the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. And she gave birth to a son. Now listen, the next verse, verse 14. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, this is like an Everybody Loves Raymond episode right here, because I'm like, I don't understand. Ruth's sitting there, just come out of labor. She got the baby. She's like, I did all the work. Why, why are you congratulating Naomi, right? But all the neighbors come out, and they say to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your, young, of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than even seven sons. Now hang out just right there for just a second. It's just so strange to me. It's just so strange to me that nobody congratulates Ruth who actually had the baby. They all congratulate the mother-in-law. And I was thinking, it's so crazy, but I think God needed us to see this piece of the story because look at Naomi's response to what they say to her. Verse 16, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him. She cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again. Now at last, Naomi has a son again. And she didn't stop him. She didn't say, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me that name anymore. Call me Mara. Because God's taken everything from me. She doesn't do that now. What used to be bitterness, somehow now, is full of hope. Why? What, what's to, nothing about any of the circumstances that made her bitter changed. Her husband was still dead. Her sons weren't coming back from the grave. She still spent a decade of her life in a country full of people who didn't love her God. She still had to travel back and forth and still had to endure those years of poverty and destitution as a widow in Israel. But she's not bitter anymore. Why? Isn't it interesting how that one little present seemed to erase all the circumstances that made her bitter before? Isn't that interesting? Huh. I asked my daughter if she'd help me today, so will you help me for just a second? She's going to be very brave. You guys, like, encourage her. Encourage her. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Encourage, Opie, encourage me, too. I like that. Was, all right, so at our house, we do this thing called bear trap, all right? If you're a dad, I, I give you copyright grant to this, all right? We do this thing called bear trap. Now, when I was a kid, we did this, it was meaner, but I, I'm not that kind of guy anymore, so it was kind of like a, you, you put your hands out like this. You can do one hand, two hands, right? You put your hand out like this, and the other person puts their hand on top. Now, when I was a kid, you did this, and you tried to slap, you know what I'm talking about? And then if you could slap that person's hand, then I could punch them, but if I missed, then they could punch me, you're... You guys ever do that? Okay. We don't do that at our house. Don't, don't call children youth services. But we do bear trap where they have to put their hand on top of my, she was trying to cheat, 
had to put their hand on top of mine, and then I try to grab it, bear trap them, bear trap. They can't get away. See? And they have to try to be quick enough to get away. See what I'm saying? And if I catch them, then they're in the bear trap, and I don't let go. It's like forever. Then I just hold them forever like this. And then they can't get away from me. They don't like that. All right? So you just sit down for a second. But I thought about bear trap this week, and I thought, man, so many of us get bear trapped. We get bear trapped in life. Some circumstance or some person grabs us, and we can't get away. And we're just stuck right there in that moment in history, that moment in time for the rest of our lives. Stuck. Don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. There's a job to do. There's a ministry for you. There's a mission to fulfill. Don't let your loss or your struggle or your pain or your challenges, don't let them define you. Instead, be defined by the one who made you, the one who died to redeem you. Fast forward a thousand years from the story of Ruth and Mary walks this same journey to Bethlehem, right? Gives birth to Jesus and Jesus comes on the scene and he would become the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer for the whole world. The best part of this story is the very end where you see the lineage or the genealogy that comes out of Ruth from this evil country, Moab. And it turns out that this son they have, they name him Obed. And Obed is the grandfather of King David, who is the great, 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 14 generations grandfather of Jesus. And had Ruth just gone home to her country and her God, she wouldn't have been part of Jesus' family tree. Instead, she gets to be part of the kinsman redeemer's history and heritage for the whole world. And you come to Matthew chapter 1 and all this genealogy of Jesus when he's about to be born, they list through 30 plus names in the line of Jesus and there's only four women included in that list and one of them, Kenny says five, five women included in that list and one of those women is Ruth. God makes it a point to mention that Jesus came from Ruth. He also makes it a point to mention that Jesus came from Rahab, who was either the mother or grandmother of Boaz. Rahab was a prostitute from another country. He also makes it a point to say that Jesus was born from Mary, who was just this teen girl that was told she was going to have a baby and she had never been with a man before. I'm sure she also knew what like stress and difficulty felt like. He also makes it a point to mention uh, Tamar from the Old Testament as a woman who was raped. I find it interesting that the, and it's not just the women in this genealogy that are like that. The men are like that too. He lists men that are in the heritage or um, um, ancestry of Jesus and they're murderers and uh, cheaters and thieves and disobedient I find it so interesting that God loves to point out the fact that like all these people who are messed up and have pain and loss and difficulty in their life, they're all the people that Jesus came from. As if to say like, well, who can come to me? Everybody can come to me. Anybody who's willing to leave their God and follow me instead. This is what hope is all about. You can't get stuck in your pain. Don't let it define you. The hope isn't 
inside of me. It isn't what gets me out of trouble or disappointment. It's what gets me through trouble or disappointment. I was thinking about our kids a couple years ago. My mom passed away, and we had to figure out how to tell our kids, and they were only like, you know, little. How old? Four and six or something like that. It's a hard thing to tell your kids, you know. But just this past week, she doesn't even know it because I try not to make a big deal of it, but just this past week, Sydney said, I really miss Grandma Katie. Did you just remember saying that? I really miss Grandma Katie. That's like a, that hurts, you know. I really miss Grandma Katie. But then she said, but I'm glad we'll get to see her someday. Okay. That's hope. That's hope. Nothing about the circumstance changed. But hope is that I've got this evidence that tells me something in the future is going to be better. And I've met people who are in their 50s that don't have that kind of hope. I've been at funerals with people that are just devastated and their life gets stuck in that moment in time forever because they have no hope inside. Oh, they wish. They wish that person would come back from the dead. They wish they wouldn't hurt so bad, but they don't have hope. They they don't have hope. They don't have an expectation that things will be better in the future because they've seen the evidence of what God's done already. That's hope. Do you have that kind of hope today? Because you can't have it. You can walk out of here with that kind of hope. It's, it's that things will turn out exactly like God promised they'll turn out. That's hope. The future is going to be good because God says it's going to be good. And because Jesus earned the right to make it that way, to redeem it, to be our family redeemer. I've, I've said to people at funerals before, I think people even are here today, I've said this to them at funerals before, like, I just don't know how people get through a funeral without Jesus. It would be so hopeless. If this is it, no wonder we don't think the world's going to get any better. I hope there's something better than this. Hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, the old hymn says. And so 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. Because the things we can see now, they're going to be gone soon. But the things that we can't see, they'll last forever. Inside, what is the inside of you built on? Is it built on the things you can't see that will last forever? Or is it built on some relationship here or some item here or some situation here that's going to be gone soon? A thousand years later, Mary would give birth to Jesus, travel to that same town of Bethlehem, and Jesus would come on the scene to redeem the whole world the way Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi and all of Elimelech's possessions. And I brought this Christmas present with me today because... It might be one of our kids. And I don't want them getting into it if I wasn't around it. So, But I bought this, brought this Christmas present with me today. And if this was sitting under your Christmas tree, it would look just like all the other Christmas presents under the tree. And you'd be pumped and excited, and you might pick it up and shake it or smell it. I don't know. <laughs> Feel it. Imagine what you think's inside of it. You would start to develop some expectation of what you hope it is or what you wish it is, Right? And then Christmas morning would come around and you'd open up that gift excited, right? But when you opened it up, sometimes you'd find out underneath, it's like all these things you didn't really want. 
all these pieces of life that you weren't really expecting. And if you experience some of these things, you probably start to feel bitter. If you started to experience abuse and divorce and pain, you'd be like, that's not what I expected to be under that paper. I wanted something way better than that. And you're like, I don't know, all this rejection and infertility and unemployment. I didn't sign on for any of this. I mean, cancer and all this stuff. That was not the gift I was expecting. But here's the thing. Until you go through this kind of stuff, you don't even really know if you have hope. Because hope only shows up when you're dealing with suffering. And so I hope that the pain you've experienced or the death you've got had to go through or the debt or the adultery or the suffering or the unemployment or the uncertainty or the addiction, I hope all that that you're dealing with right now inside, I hope what it does today is it reveals for you if you have hope or not. And if you don't, you can have it. It all starts with just trusting Jesus. Can I read you the verse I started today with in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, the prayer I've got for you? I pray that God, the source of all hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit written to people who are being fed the lions alive. Do you have hope when this stuff happens? Because if you don't, you might just have some wishes. But what I have to do is I have to see this stuff for what it is. That it's just temporary. Just a snapshot in time. It it isn't what's on the inside. Because what's on the inside is what really mattered. And what was on the inside for Naomi was a grandson, wasn't it? And when she got that grandson, it came with an extra gift of hope. And nothing on the outside of the package changed. No snapshot in history changed. But now all of a sudden, she felt okay again. She felt hopeful again. She couldn't see the bigger picture all the time. But this grandson showed up and brought hope to her. And that hope showed up down the road as salvation for the whole world. All because Ruth and Naomi decided to give all of their life, all their attention, all of their confidence, all of their expectation, all of their commitment and honor to God. And so Jesus shows up and becomes hope for everybody. And you still face all of this stuff But deep down on the inside, there's a better gift. If you don't have that gift today, you can have it. You don't need me to do anything for you. Just ask God for it. If you just trust him, I pray that God will fill you up on the inside with peace and joy because you trust in him. And then you will start to overflow with confident hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. I love you guys. Let me pray for you because we need hope this Christmas season, maybe more than anything. God, would you give the people in our room hope today?
Would you give them the, the courage to act on what they've heard in your word? Would you invade this room right now and help people to cross from death to life, to recognize from the circumstances they've gone through that so far in life, they've really been trusting in themselves. They've really been wishing instead of hoping. And would you convince them, God, in their heart that they need to trust you, really trust you for hope. In Jesus' name I pray.